I'd invite you to stand body or spirit as we come before God's word, quite likely as Jesus and the disciples would have, reciting what he called the great commandment, what they called the Shema. If you'll follow after me in Hebrew, we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Achad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This morning, as we continue looking at some foundational beliefs uh, that we share, one is that we have a story in the Bible. And so we're going to pick up Paul talking about the role of uh, the people who've come before um, Uh, us in the Bible. This is what he says beginning in Romans 11 verse 13. I'm talking to you Gentiles and as much as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, the wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. A few years ago, my wife got interested in uh, Ancestry.com, and so as she poured hours and hours on the computer, I began to learn all sorts of uh, interesting things about her family and uh, about my family. And I think that's important because we want to know more of our story. Uh, We thought it was so important for our kids to know our story that uh, when they were older, we took them on a trip to the East Coast and we started uh, where we went to school together and showed them where we lived when we were first there. Then we went on up and went to uh, uh, the Boston Common and showed them sites of the Revolutionary War. We showed them Plymouth Rock and uh, came back and showed them the Gettysburg. Uh, Gettysburg Battlefield, uh, we think it's important to know your story. We think it's so important that we even, uh, when ESPN produced um, a show called I Hate Christian Leitner about Duke basketball, we made our two daughters-in-law and our future daughter-in-law watch it, and we quizzed them on it so they would understand where their uh, husbands were coming from. Uh, It's important to know our story. It gives us a sense not only of who we are in the present, but I really believe it gives us a direction for the future. Now, I'm here to tell you this morning that God has a story as well, and that story, of course, is in the Scripture as the people with the Holy Spirit record their experience of God's movement. And God's story can basically be summed up like this. When everything started in the Garden of Eden, it was wonderful. Things began to collapse, and both creation and human beings uh, uh, began to uh, spiral downward. And so God called a people through Abraham and later a nation through Moses to try to uh, put things back together. Those people end up enslaved to the Egyptians. God led them to freedom and said, here, start this country and show uh, in the promised land how I want you to live. But they continued to struggle to build the world that God wanted them to build. So God would send the prophets to warn them and let them know when they were off course. They persisted uh, 
uh, because of their slavery, this time to sin, uh, to go off a different direction. And when the Old Testament ends, the people are in exile and they are suffering. When the New Testament picks up, the people are still slaves, not only to another people, the Romans, but they are now, and they continue to be enslaved to sin and to death. And so God continues God's work and sends Jesus. And then Jesus, of course, in a, a wonderful act of redemption on the cross, frees us from the power of sin and death. And then through the Holy Spirit, equips the people to join God back in this original purpose of putting things back together. And so by the time you get to Revelation at the end, the kingdom of heaven has come back to the earth and things are as God intended. And that's God's story. And from God's point of view, if I were to look at the story, I would call it's a story that goes from garden to garden, from the Garden of Eden when everything was right, through all of these difficulties, back to one day there will be a garden-like metaphor, metaphorically, a garden-like existence again. I have a good friend that's a rabbi that calls, uh, that calls this project God's unfinished business as God uh, works through us to uh, recreate and renew the world. I have another friend that calls it God's big fixer-upper. Uh, but God's got a movement, and so that, that's part of God's story. Now, part of our story is that we play a part in God's fixer-upper and God's rescue operation. My favorite description of this is that we are renewed people who renew creation. So as Christians in Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we participate with God and with others in getting done what God wants done. So that's God's larger story. Now, like every story, the story A has to be communicated, and it is communicated through uh, our scriptures, but B, the story has to be known in context, or you might get parts of the story wrong or misinterpreted. So, for example, uh, some of you uh, may know, uh, I've told you before that my father played um, high school and college football, but in high school football in a game, uh, he, on a frozen field, he got uh, knocked out in the first half, got knocked unconscious, came to his feet and stayed in the game, and for the rest of the game, his team had to tell him whether he was on offense or defense. And dad would tell that story uh, uh, a number of times, but the interpretation of the story depended on the context. Because it can mean one of two things. If we were whiny about something and didn't want to buck up and do what we need to do, dad might tell the story about how he played football even though he had a concussion. And if we were being silly and beating our head against a wall and really working harder or differently than we needed to, God would tell us, don't be stupid like I was the time I played football with a concussion. And the, the interpretation depended on the context. So as most of you know, this fall, I uh, was the recipient of a concussion. And I'm afraid I took the exact wrong interpretation. And I took the tough it out route, uh, which didn't particularly help for a number of weeks. But every story has a context, and to rightfully apply and interpret that story, you've got to know the context. So when it comes to all the stories here in the Bible, I want to suggest to you that you need to pay attention to context. Context would include who wrote this, this part of the story, uh, when did they write it, to whom did they write it, what was going on at the time they wrote it. In other words, what's the context? Where is this in the, uh, in the book? Uh, in other words, if you're reading from a gospel, what's Jesus doing right now? Where is it in the larger picture? And then I would also say, and where is this story in the whole context 
of the Bible. And so you get a context, and that begins to help you. Let me give you just one quick example this morning. A verse that's often been used out of context comes from the Corinthians, where Paul says, women need to be quiet in church. Uh, and if you, But you do a little digging, and you begin to find out, here's the context. When Paul writes originally, he writes to a church in Corinth that meets in a house, and they, things are kind of out of control, and it's hard to worship because they're often being interrupted. And one of the interruptions, apparently, is this. When the Jewish world moved into the Greek world, they adopted um, a custom of uh, men on one side of the synagogue and women across the aisle on the other side. And so when they sat in a house church as Christians, they kept the same arrangement, men on one side and women on the other. Typically in a Jewish household, the men will receive far more extensive biblical training than the women. The women learn the book of Psalms, the book of Ruth, their so-called worship books. The men learn the other things. So if a letter is being written from Paul or the pastor is trying to teach, and there were, it was a pretty good chance that the women at this stage hadn't learned enough yet, been taught enough to understand everything. So apparently it was like my wife yelling over to me, David, what's he talking about? And Paul's answer, if you go back and look in context, basically says to my wife, wait till you get home and talk about it because we're trying to have a worship service here. It's nothing about restricting the role of women. Lydia and uh, uh, is one of Paul's uh, uh, favorite leaders and teachers, Yodia and Syntyche in the church of Philippi, our women teachers. The, the church at Ephesus was led by women. So it's not that. It's the, or the, if you look at the context in Corinth, it's Paul has two or three chapters um, um, uh, dedicated to how, how do we have an orderly worship service? You, you've got some problems. Things are a little out of control. Let's try to get them back in control. So knowing the context uh, will help. One other one real quick. And, uh, there's a passage where Paul talks to Timothy and says that women will be saved uh, through childbirth. There were a lot of people who taught for a long time that if you were a woman and you didn't have a child, you were somehow secondary in the kingdom of God. But when you do the context, the letter of Timothy is written to a church named at Ephesus, which is the host for an annual festival uh, for a Greek goddess, Artemis, who comes across um, uh, the Aegean and, and becomes in Turkey uh, the goddess Kibbola, and she's particularly got some nasty traits. One of them is she uh, uh, expects sacrifice uh, to be offered to her when you worship, but if you will sacrifice yourself and worship to her and sacrifice others and follow her, she promises you that you will have safe delivery through childbirth. It's a promise from a goddess. And when infant mortality rate, and, and then also the rate uh, of people dying on childbirth is pretty high, that's pretty, un, that's pretty attractive. All Paul is saying is, look, when, when you get pregnant, Christians, don't worry. Jesus has you. It has nothing to do with that a woman has to bear children or they are lesser a part of the kingdom of God. You just need to know the context. But what I want to tell you is uh, what Paul reminds us is of most any scriptural text, part of our context is going to have to be Hebraic, and that's why we've spent so much time in our church trying to understand Jesus and his Jewish roots. Not because we want to be Jesus, I mean to be Jewish, but because we want to be like Jesus and understand more. So it's become a burning question for me over the last few years. How would Jesus 
have picked up this book and read it. First of all, and Jesus wasn't in a book, it was in a number of scrolls. And what I've learned uh, from the help of many scholars is basically I want to pass on to you seven things that I think apply the way Jesus would read um, the scripture. Uh, the first one is this, re- Jesus would see the scripture to be used in dialogue with the community. If you go through the gospels, Jesus, people ask Jesus questions and, and with only two exceptions, he doesn't answer their questions. Jesus has no intent of taking this book and banging people over the head with it and saying, here is all your answers. You need to swallow these whole. Jesus intended that we would take the scriptures and we would dialogue with one another in community and come to a greater understanding of them. Jesus would see the Bible as much as a discussion starter as it is a discussion closer. And anytime somebody tries to close you off with the Bible, be very careful about that because Jesus, that, he wouldn't have understand that particular use of the Bible in most uh, cases. The second thing is Jesus would have understand something I think we miss, and that is Jesus knew sometimes Bible verses come into conflict with each other. They'll tell you one thing in one book and one thing in another. So the whole story of the Good Samaritan, remember those mean priests that walk around the, the wounded guy? Well, they are priests who believe that the most important Bible verse is I must be ritually clean for the worship of God. So I can't touch anyone who's bleeding or he might be dead. But the Samaritan is a person who believes the most important Bible verse is love your neighbor. So the two verses come into conflict. And so sometimes you have to choose one verse over another to make the right decision. So when you pick a verse out and use it, you better be careful that you know what the other verses are and you've prayed through and talked through what the context is. Uh, A third one that I want to share with you is that um, when Jesus read the Bible, it wouldn't have been for doctrine. Jesus and and his um, people of his age read the Bible because they wanted to know what to do with their life. How are we supposed to live? And so the Bible is not, first of all, to, to formulate a set of beliefs. The Bible is to formulate a, and shape a person who will live in a certain way. The earliest Christians were never called believers. It wasn't about what you believed or didn't believe. They were called followers of the way. It was like, what did you do? So they always read the Bible for, what am I supposed to do with this in my life? A fourth thing I would share with you about Jesus is he would have known the, uh, a teaching the rabbis had, which was every Bible uh, a verse or story has 70 faces, which is to say it has unlimited meanings depending on the situation and the Holy Spirit and where you are and how you might apply it. And so if you look in Jesus' day, the rabbis are always taking Old Testament passages and reusing them in creative ways. We can see this in Peter's sermon in the book of Acts. But it just reminds us that there are a lot of possibilities in a biblical text, and that's why we need to be in conversation with each other. Another thing Jesus would have understand is the rabbis had a picture of uh, interpreting the Bible of like Jacob wrestling the angel. Do you remember that story where Jacob wrestles the angel all night and says, I won't let you go unless you bless me in Genesis 32. That was their approach to the Bible. I'm going to wrestle with these Bible passages and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get something out of it that blesses me and directs me for my life. But it's not that I'm just going to be able to uh, pull, pull up my car with the engine still running, hop out, open a Bible verse, figure it out, get back in the car and drive on. It, it is a wrestling. 
Um, and Jesus would have known that. The other thing that, that Jesus would have known, which is very hard for modern day Protestants, but I just want to tell you this, what Jesus would have known, is that the Jews believed that the Bible had to be reinterpreted in every generation. In other words, the Bible was a living word of God. Have you ever seen that in the Bible where it says it's the living word of God? And most of us say, oh, that's good. That means we can still use it to, uh, in, in ways today to make the old point. The old point is always going to be valuable. Well, oftentimes the old point is valuable. But the way they meant it is that the Bible continues to move, live, and breathe with the people. And so it spoke to my grandfather 80 years ago. And it speaks to me today, and the message may not be exactly the same uh, because we are charged with reinterpreting it um, using, of course, the context. And they would have known that. And they taught that every uh, follower was, um, was supposed to be a, a, a virtuoso, they, is what they use in, the, uh, in more recent days. But in other words, every follower should become a master uh, in, in, in trying to apply the Bible because believed it was a living document. Now, I never went to law school. I had a son and, and brother who did, but so I don't know. But I, I understand there, there sometimes, as a layperson, you can look at the Constitution as a fixed document, and it only meant what it meant in 1785 or 87. And then others see the Constitution of the United States as a living and breathing document that changes as the situations change from the 18th to the 19th to the 20th to the 21st century. Now, that may be too simplistic, but I think that's one way of looking at our Bible. It's a living, breathing document that is the Word of God, but it continues to speak. And so finally, the last thing Jesus would have known, the reason it continues to speak, is because the Holy Spirit works every time the Bible is opened. The Holy Spirit works to begin to, uh, to teach, instruct, and help us as we study the Bible together. One day Jesus said, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'll be there with you. But Jews would have known that Jesus was borrowing a quote that was familiar to them, which is where two or three people study the word of God together, the Shekinah glory of God will show up. So Jesus is basically saying, look, I'm God, and I'm going to show up whenever you study about me. And he would have assumed we couldn't know all that we need to know about him without his assistance. And so those are some of the things I think that I'm learning as I try to take the Bible seriously and understand God's story and my place in the story. You may have heard the old adage that we may be the only Bible that some people ever read. I think what Jesus might want to say about that is we may be the only Bible that some people ever read, so we need to study, read, and wrestle with the Bible so that we can be the best possible version for others to see.